0: Last week, we started off this series, we're calling it counterculture, because when it comes to living out our faith in this culture, we have to have this spiritual toughness, right? And so here's the question that we're asking during this series. How can we live strong in our faith in a culture that is compromised? Now, the book of Daniel is a playbook for us to be able to really see how Daniel and his friends, how that they stood strong in the in the face of a compromised culture that they had been placed in. Now, fortunately for us, the Old Testament book of of Daniel gives us some examples as to how we can live a strong faith. So uh, just a little bit of review, Daniel, the book of Daniel has four main characters. Daniel's the lead character, but also there's three others. In fact, every time you see the names of these other three people, it's all grouped together as if they are one. And so the Bible calls them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God had uh, allowed the, ba- the army of Babylon to besiege Jerusalem, take the Hebrews captive. And now the king of Babylon, ne- Nebuchadnezzar, has a number of young, intelligent young men and at, in his court. So he takes these Jewish young men and they bring him to Babylon and they're serving him and he's trying to use them to advance his kingdom. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are among four of these of all the young men that were chosen. Now one of the ways that they tried to brainwash them and and, and affect them with their culture, they did multiple things, but one of the things that they did was that they changed their names. And so last week we learned that if you take on a name that God has not given you, that you will miss the life that God has for you. So we are not accepting of any other name that a culture would try to give us, but that we are going to only accept the name that God has given us and the, and the, the plans and the callings and the identity that he has given us. So today we pick up in the third chapter of Daniel. And Now, Daniel isn't mentioned in the third chapter of the book of Daniel, and most people think that he was probably away on some trip that he had been sent on, just doing some work on behalf of the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he was an unpredictable pagan ruler. He was self-absorbed. He was a huge proponent of idol worship. And somewhere along the line, Nebuchadnezzar had this huge statue built. It was 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. It was made of gold from top to bottom. They had this huge dedication service for it, and everybody came to it. All of the political leaders, all the religious leaders would have been there. All of the citizens would have come out. Some people actually estimate that there might have been as many as 3,000 people there you know, for the dedication service of this monument. So in Daniel chapter three and verse four through, uh, through six, it says that the herald loudly proclaimed, nations of people of every language, this is what we command you to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So now every Jewish person who had been brought there, they had a decision to make in that moment. Who am I gonna worship? That was the question. Do I reject my godly heritage or do I step in line with the cultural beliefs of those who have taken me captive? And so the music plays and everybody bows down, every Babylonian, every Jewish person, every Hebrew, except for three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the king's men, they bring this to the king's attention and they play to his ego saying, well, hey, look, this is an affront to your authority, king. And so in verse 12, it says that there were certain Jews um, among you that were appointed. This is them telling on uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they tell him, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these men, these three Jewish guys, they say they will not bow down and, and worship the graven image. They knew from the the Ten Commandments, they weren't supposed to do that. So rather than bow, they chose to take a stand. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful general. In four decades of leadership, he had never lost one single battle. And now this guy hears that somebody has disobeyed his order. It would not be good. He was angry. Look at verse 13. It says that he was furious with rage and Nebuchadnezzar, um, he, when he heard about these three guys, and they were brought before the king and and the king said, so is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship them, then very good. But... If you do not worship the image, you will immediately be thrown into a flaming furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, he said. He, this is an angry, angry man. And, and so, but he asked what God, small g. You see, he was not acquainted with the one true, capital G, God. And so the king, at this time, he resorts to intimidation, and he says, "Look, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a second chance, but just make sure that you understand the consequences if you disobey." Now, you'd think at this at this point, these guys would huddle up and they'd say, "Hey, look, we're 700 miles away from home. How about if we just do this? How about for just next week or so, we just lay low and we and we bow down? But when we bow down, we'll actually be praying to our god, and and nobody else will know it." And Satan, all the while, is whispering to them, saying, hey, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are not listening to those whispers. You see, when we refuse to bow, the world has its furnaces to put us in, doesn't it? Furnaces of scorn, furnaces of ridicule. So what may be at stake, it might be your job. You know, it might be a dating relationship. It might be the way that your coworkers see you from that point on if you stand up for what's right. And when you can feel all those eyes looking at you, are you gonna make the right choice? When the world asks you to bow, when your boss asks you to do something unethical, or whether you're tempted to be consumed by fear as opposed to living by faith, these three men, they would not alter their convictions to, to save their own hide. And on a daily basis, we are all tempted to, to bow, probably not to a 90-foot golden statue. But listen, many of us are enticed, right, to bow down to maybe it's materialism, to indulge in lust, maybe just to coast in your marriage or as a parent, and not be intentional. And the, the answer always comes back to, or the question is always, who will we worship? And a lot of us don't realize that When we think about worship, we come to a church and we raise our hands or we worship God. But here's what I'm telling you, that it's actually bigger than that. It's different than that. And it is how we live our lives. And here's the key point that I wanna drive home to you today. There is a battle for your worship. There is an invisible battle over your worship. And and let me go back and explain it to you. And we'll, we'll pick up the story in a minute. In Isaiah and Ezekiel tell the story of how Lucifer, who was once an angel in God's court, he actually fell because he wanted to be worshiped. He was actually in charge of all the worship in heaven. So he was the worship leader. He was the main worshiper in charge of all the worship. But one day, Isaiah 14 says that he decided that he wanted all that worship for himself. Five times in the book of Isaiah, he says, I want to be praised. I will be lifted up. I will be excelled. He wanted to be be higher than God. And that didn't go over too well with God. So God, God cast him from heaven to earth. And most scholars actually believe that it happened between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Because it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So therefore, everything would be perfect because God's perfect. But then the earth was foremost and void. And most scholars believe that the in-between was when Satan was cast to the earth and the chaos began. So then in verse 3, God said, hey, we got to fix this chaos. Let there be light. See, one of the things that God did as far as putting things back into order was he created you and me with this unique, unique distinction. I want you to see this, because now there is no worship leader in heaven, and so guess who he gave that assignment to? He gave it to you and me. And see, that's why Satan hates us so much. It's, he's not just a nasty little devil with a pitchfork. That's not his deal. He is angry because you now possess, you are now the one that has his job to worship God. And so he will battle you for your worship. And that's what, see, that's what we're supposed to do forever is give praise and honor and worship God because he created us with the ability to to sing music, to create music. That's why most of us are consumed with music. I mean, we love music. We're impacted emotionally by music. He gave us instruments in our voice. He gave us percussion instruments with our hands. And Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. See, that's what we're created to do, and Satan hates it. So this whole thing started with this battle over worship. And guess what? Everything's actually going to end in a battle over worship too. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament that there is going to be an Antichrist that raises up. And part of what he'll do, he'll set up an idol of himself in the temple of Jerusalem, and he'll force people to worship him. He, I'm going to show it to you in the Bible, okay? Uh, I'm going to teach it for just a few minutes, and then I'll get back to how it applies to us personally today. Second Thessalonians chapter two uh, is talking about the antichrist. It says, "Do not let anyone deceive you." Say, so, well, you might say, "Well, I'm not deceived." Well, that's what a deceived person would say. You know, if you ever say, "I am deceived," well, then you're not deceived anymore. You're only deceived when you don't think you're deceived. That's pretty deep, right? But that, but that's what it says, is don't let anybody deceive you. And the reason it says it is because because we are. Otherwise, we'd be able to see it. But he says, there is a day coming when the rebellion will occur, and this man of lawlessness, that's what he, the Bible calls the Antichrist, this man is will be revealed, the man doomed for destruction. And I love how it tells us how it ends for him. But look, it says, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. See, that's what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. And that just means that there is coming a day where Satan will build a statue of himself, literally, in the temple of Jerusalem. And when you see that happening, you need to beware. The end is near. And and actually, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the Antichrist and what happens with him in the end. But here's the thing. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, Because of the sign uh, that the Antichrist was given power to do on, the fir- on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up, now watch this, an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lives. So he sets up this idol of himself in the temple, and he was given the power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So he will motivate people to worship him, not because they want to, because they're afraid not to. So he forced everybody, you know, big and, and little, rich and poor, to receive a mark on his right hand and on or on his forehead. So you've got to wear the mark of the beast on one place or the other if you're going to buy or sell. So you can't buy anything. This becomes the currency. And so in the name of the beast, or the number of his nu- name, 666, the Bible describes it later, is this mark that you'll take on. And it's gonna be obvious that it is the mark of the beast. Everybody's worried, you know, that even back when credit cards came out and there were numbers on it, and that's this is how you're gonna buy, and they're gonna do away with cash, and oh wow, that must be the mark of the beast. And then when they put, you know, you could buy things with your phone, you know, and you know, that's a phone in your hand and you're buying and selling, that's the mark of the beast. Or now we have vaccination passports and people are asking, is that the mark of the beast? Well, here's the thing. It is going to be an obvious choice for you to worship that instead of God, for you to take the mark. You're not going to die and then wake up in heaven and God say, oh, sorry, credit cards were the mark of the beast. You got tricked. You're out. No, it is going to be an obvious choice for you to take the mark. Just like this was an obvious choice for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to this idol. And it's nothing more than a battle for your worship. Satan, he just wants you to worship anything other than God. So he will cause you to find things that you think are worthy of worship. That's why we have, you know, this this huge hedonistic society today, which means that you determine what's what's good based upon your feelings. You know, it's like, well, that's just the way God made me, and that's the way I feel. Don't judge me. That's just the way I feel. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And so that's the way, you know, we're going to play. Everybody's just going to do what's good based upon their feeling. And we're not going to have any standard anymore. That is literally the culture that we have right now. And we even have churches that are following suit. It's like, you know, yeah, well, we don't want to tell the truth because that's kind of judgmental. So we're going to be more tolerant. We're going to include all religions and all gods and everybody's belief because God's a God of love. Well, yes, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice and has a perfect standard. We have to be careful at, at, uh, that we don't set ourselves up, up as God by doing that. Here's the thing is Satan doesn't want anybody to, or anybody but him to get worship. He doesn't want God to have your worship. He wants to redirect it to anything else, sports, shopping, hunting, business, career, money, power, lust. Listen, I'm telling you, it is a trick of the devil to get you off of worshiping the true living God. He is the only one worthy of our worship. It's a trick, and it will be a last days test. There is a battle for your worship. So, back to the story, Daniel 16 or 316, what do these guys do? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They replied to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love that response. He's, they said, "Look, we don't have to yell or scream, or we don't have to defend ourselves, because if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, that God, the God that we serve, is able to save us, and He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand." And I love the next line: "Even if He doesn't, we want you to know." King, that we are not going to bow no matter. We are not going to serve your gods, worship the image of the God of gold that you have set up. We are not going to do that. And listen, church, I'm telling you, don't be deceived. There will come a day when you are going to be put to the test of something that goes against what you know to be right. There is a battle for your worship. And my question is, what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about? We have to direct our worship back to the only place, the only person that deserves it. That we don't waver, even in the face of horrible consequences. And we stand for our faith and what we believe. See, that's what believers do. So Nebuchadnezzar was not excited at the fact that they had disobeyed his order. And if you think he was upset before, man, he's livid now. He is furious with these three guys. And so in chapter 3, verse 19, he has the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it had ever been heated up before. And watch this. Some of the strongest soldiers in the army uh, tied up these three guys, and, and threw them into the furnace. And in verse 21, So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent, the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers and took up the soldiers that took up these three guys. And the, and they were firmly tied. They fell into the blazing furnace. So I don't want you to miss this, Okay. These strong, mighty men that threw them in to the to the furnace, they died. It was so hot that they died. I mean, just getting close to it caused them to die. So the, I'm sure the king thinks now I've taken care of everything. Because if these dies, if these guys die a horrific death, nobody else is going to challenge me. But while the king's men are celebrating, something catches the king's eye in the furnace. In verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, wait a minute, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And then he says, well, then look, why do I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed? And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. That was the only way that he knew how to describe it says it looks like God's son is in there with him. Now let's stop for just a second and let's picture this for a minute. The king and his men, they think everything's over. You know, their history, their toast literally that you know and they're just celebrating everything's going great and Nebuchadnezzar looks in and these four people are in there. And somehow the only thing that burned up were the ropes that had them bound. So they're moving around freely. They're having a blast. They're singing, we didn't start the fire. Okay, sorry, bad preacher joke. I don't know what they're doing in there. But they have got to be having the time of their life because the Son of God is in there with them. So watch this in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar is gonna approach the, the opening of the blazing furnace and shout, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and son of the most high God come out. And they walk out of the furnace. And I guarantee you that in this moment, all the men, all the people, the court that's there, that's crowded around them, including King Nebuchadnezzar, that they would just pause, shocked, frozen. And I'm sure everybody crowds around them and the Bible says that the fire had not harmed, not a hair on their body that their robes were not scorched. They didn't even smell like fire. Let me tell you, when God steps in, he does not mess around. And it says that the king, he totally and completely changes his tune. And he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And get ready for this, because this next verse it will motivate us to make sure that God is a priority and that we worship him and him alone. This pagan king in verse 29, watch this. He says, therefore, I make a new decree, a new law, that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their, and their houses will be turned into, into rubble because there is no other God that can save this way. He's still violent, but talk about a transformation the decree for the whole nation is totally changed because of three men who refused to bow and worship anybody else but the one true god and i imagine that that week in babylon on craigslist there was an ad for a 90-foot golden statue slightly used nebuchadnezzar he changed everything not because of a social media campaign or a majority vote. You know what changed his mind? Because of bold, uncompromising faith of three men that who stood together in the face of death. There was a battle for their worship just like there is a battle for your worship. And they stood strong in what they believed and they changed a nation. And I wonder what's on the line in our nation in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhood. If we would just have the courage and boldness to stand for God, man, that could be a game changer for the world that we live in today. First Peter chapter 4, 12 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Here it is in the New Testament, and it gives us this phrase, fiery trial, that just begs us to look back at this story in Daniel chapter three. You see, we're all in a fiery furnace with something that's going on. And so here is the bottom line of this message, that the ultimate battle in the last days and in your life is gonna be over what you worship. That is the last great test of your life. The greatest test of our culture Do we have the guts to love our God and stand for what we believe in no matter what? So, I mean, how do we know? Like if we were to give ourselves like a test, you know, or a quiz, you know, individually a worship checkup, you know, what would that look like? Well, I just want to submit to you that Jesus is the standard and he gives us one powerful verse where literally he tells us that the whole Bible is summed up in this one single command. Scholars call it the great commandment. And it's found in many places. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, love the Lord your God. Well, how, Jesus? Well, define it for us. With your whole heart and soul. That's the first way. You want to love God, worship God? Where is your heart and soul? Then he says, I want you to worship the Lord your God with all of your mind. Well, how do you do that? We'll talk about that in a minute. And then I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. Your heart and soul, your mind, and your strength. So let's give every one of us, myself included, just a little worship checkup. Let's see if we are a part of the deceived. And and I think all of us can be subject to it and not even know it, we just don't see it. And that's why we have prophecy and preaching and that's why we have God's word to bring us in line and to warn us and encourage us and to inform us. And that's what I'm trying to do today. So what's heart and soul? I wanna say that heart and soul just means your affections, it's your emotions. The question is very simple. Where are your emotions going? Where are your emotions going? Let me ask it this way, what do you love the most? What are you expressing love for the most? You know, one of my personal pet peeves is how some people have just tamed down worship over the centuries right? Now, if you ask the average person, you know, what does the Bible say about worship? You know, well, they would say, oh, well, it's kind of quiet and reverent, and you just bow your head de- kneel, maybe cry. Man, you can't find verses that say that in the Bible. They don't exist. The Bible says that they were shouting, clapping, lifting up of hands, dancing. I mean, it, it really would have looking, looked like a sporting event that we might attend. And if we're not careful will allow the passions of our lives to actually overstep our worship for God and our passion for God. This is why I tell you to lean in and worship at the beginning of the service. So where are you emotional? What are you emotional about? Just a little checkup. So now the next one is your mind. So your mind, you know, speaks to your intention or what do you think about the most? I would submit to you that what you think about the most is, it does become what you worship the most. And I want you to know that there is a spirit that is trying to get your attention away from God. Heart, so you got your heart and soul, then your mind. The last thing is where Jesus says, worship with your strength. It's talking about your ability. In other words, what are you doing for God? Isn't it amazing? We put so much energy into other activities, our lawn, hunting, shopping, ball games, whatever. And and that's fine. That's all good. But God says you can have other loves, just don't have any other loves above me. So the question is, what are we doing for God? And is that a priority in your life? That's why we give you opportunities to volunteer and serve in the house of God. See. The battle in the last day is going to be for what you worship. And the book of Daniel gives us this prophetic story of what the last days will look like. And it is so that we it will alter the courses of our life to serve him. Now, you don't need me to tell you what you worship and what you don't. The Holy Spirit is there in you, and he will put a finger on what's in your life that maybe you're worshiping above him. Because we're all worshiping something. Everybody that's washing, watching is a worshiper. But the question is, is God getting that worship? And not just is God getting it, but where, where does he place on your list? See, we're notorious, especially in the, in the Bible Belt, to make sure God's involved in our life. But sometimes we don't give God the best of our life. We compartmentalize, compartmentalize it all, and we give him an hour on Sunday. And God desires more than that. He wants our whole life. 2 Corinthians 16.9 says the eyes of the Lord range through the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He is looking for people to worship him, that worship him. There is a battle for your worship. So, you know, we need to decide what we're not going to worship, but we also have to decide who will we worship. And I'm declaring that as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. We're gonna give him the best of our affections, the best of our intentions, and the best of our abilities. Every one of us, all of us, that's what we need to do. Let me close with this verse and then we'll pray. Jesus says this in John four. He says, there's a time coming, and guess what? It's already come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that God right now is looking for. My challenge to all of us is this, be that person. Have you allowed your worship to go in another direction? You know, do you, you have a course alteration opportunity today. Maybe God's on your list, but not at the top of your list. Where is he today? And I'm telling you, God will strengthen you if you put him at the top of your list. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word today that is powerful and true, that it is sharp and it cuts spirit and soul, and it helps us divide what is us and what's you. So as your word has led us and guided us today, and as your Holy Spirit has brought us maybe some, some things to our remembrance that we need to adjust, we commit today, to not only be hearers of your word, but also be doers. So Holy Spirit, just lead us and guide us today. And we commit to apply your word to our lives this week and make adjustments if needed. May you be at the top of our list. May we worship you with all of our affection, all of our attention, and all of our ability. In Jesus' name, amen.